to another edition of Welcome to the Mad Max Minute. We're out of the ruins and out of the wreckage in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 103, which begins with cast credits, starting with Mel Gibson, and it ends with U.S. casting by Mike Fenton. Good Monday morning, Julia. Happy Monday. We are here at the beginning of five minutes of credits. We, I don't think I've ever had this much time devoted to the end credits of a movie before. No, we've not. I was going back and looking at our notes for prior seasons, and I don't think, and I'm pretty sure that for the first season, Mad Max 1, we had more or less two minutes of credits, and that was it. It was the tail end of 91, all of 92, and 93 was not even a full minute. So less than two and a half minutes of credits for the first movie. And then for Road Warrior, we had the credits start right around second 16 of minute 93, and that movie was only 95 minutes, so we only had one full episode to talk about credits in 94, and then we had our special crossover thing for 95. So we have an opportunity opportunity to really take a close look at Thunderdome over the next week and a half. It's another thing about this movie. It's only 107 minutes long, so we are going to end the season on another Wednesday episode. Yep. It's like season one all over again. (laughs) So to kick us off here at the top of the week, I figure we might as well talk about Max because his name is the one that we start this minute with, more or less. And so my first question about Max is, how does he change over the course of this story? When I look at a narrative, I expect our main character to be different at the end compared to the beginning, because why have a narrative if everything returns to the status quo at the end? If you go from point A, take a squiggly line, and then wind up right back at point A, you might as well be in a weekday sitcom television show. And unfortunately, I think in this movie, Max starts off at point C, squiggly, 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 ends up back at point A. I think he ends up behind where he started because he started this movie with a whole camel truck worth of supplies and a source of livelihood for himself. At the end of this movie, he's in the same place, but with no stuff. I think the real progression that Max takes over the movie is learning to sacrifice himself, his well-being, his possessions for the morally right choice, Mm. to do the right thing. And thinking about it, I think the Max that we know in this movie is closer to the pre-Jesse's death Max that we knew back in the beginning. Really? Closer. He's not a lawman. He is not afraid to do amoral things. I mean, he takes a hitman contract in the beginning of the movie, but he helps people for the sake of helping people. Mm. When Anna Goanna wakes him up in a panic, saying that they're gone, they're gone, he hops too. And he doesn't hesitate to walk out into the desert to save them. 
Yeah. Knowing full well that it could be completely fruitless. They could already be dead. He could die. And then the three children that go with him could die. But he does it anyways. Hmm. I forget that the max that we see in the crack in the earth is more or less the same sort of person that Max was back in Bartertown. You don't think there's any sort of shift in his mentality? Because I always thought that Max was a total mercenary type when he arrived in Bartertown. Like he was used to being off on his own. He needed his stuff back. He saw a way to get his stuff back. So he sold his violent skills in order to get his stuff back and then refused once he got the whole crisis of conscience in the Thunderdome. And it was always my thought that that shakeup was what got him intellectually to the point where he would be the kind of person to hop up and help Anna Goanna. I definitely see that. To change from the mercenary that we open with to the self-sacrificing person, there has to be something. Yeah. Some event, some catalyst. And I'm not sure that we really looked at it that way when we were in that minute, but seeing that Blaster is not intellectually capable of being responsible for his actions Mm -hmm. and choosing not to kill him. That was it. That was the catalyst that perhaps returned some morality to Max. Maybe he'd spent those 15 years getting harder and colder. Because when we first see Max in this movie, 15 years have passed from the point where he thought that he was doing the right thing. He thought that he was helping people out. He thought that he was doing something noble, and it turned out that he was just being used as a decoy. They betrayed his trust, I think. Yes, I agree that they betrayed his trust. I don't think that he would necessarily feel used because he was just a decoy. I think he realized, oh, of course I was a decoy. That makes so much sense. That was a great plan. That's why he smiled at the gyro captain at the end. I think so. I don't think he was hurt by discovering his position in the whole plan. I think, oh, I can't really remember how we talked about Max and how he ended the film. At the end of Road Warrior, helping these people, it cost him something, but he also gained something. He didn't really lose the Interceptor because of them. He lost the Interceptor because of the Raiders. So he couldn't blame that on them. And he didn't walk away from the deal completely empty-handed. He had the lone wolf. He did. And he walked away with his life. Mm -hmm. He got himself into the mess to begin with. He voluntarily walked into that compound. He was mostly unknown to the raiders. He could have moved on. But he got himself involved. And that ended up costing him. Nearly costing him his life. Which... The compound saved his life and then provided him a way to get out. So when we see Max in the beginning of this movie, he has regained and then I would say gained even more what he had lost. He has what seems to be a successful livelihood as a tradesman. As a wanderer, yeah, as someone who is equipped to handle the wasteland. Which is more than what his path was before. With the Interceptor and his case of dog food and his dog, well, how did he get more food and how did he get more fuel? When we see him in the beginning of Thunderdome, he knows how he's going to get more. He's 
been scavenging. We're pretty sure he is heading to Bartertown anyways with goods to trade. That's a good observation that I haven't really thought about before. The fact that when Max started off Road Warrior, he was still more or less running from a situation that he experienced back in the first movie. And being left alone at the end of Road Warrior, he spent 15 years getting to the point where he had a pretty good system down. He had the camel cart. It was full of supplies. He had his camels. He had his monkey helping. He was more or less comfortable. And we never get a confirmation that he was going to Barter Town, but those camels don't change course. No, they don't. Jedediah just drives them straight on till morning. Right. <laughs> There's a very good chance that he would have made it to Barter Town whether his camels were stolen or not. I think it would have been an interesting detail if Jedediah had grabbed the wagon and then turned it in another direction, like banked a hard right or a hard left or something like that because it would have given us an opportunity for Max to sit up from the dirt, look over at his camel cart, and then have Bruce Spence's big toothy face like waving sayonara sucker so that he would have a positive physical identification for Jedediah. Yes. It would be an interesting thought experiment if Max was going to Barter Town if he made it there with all of his goods and he entered Barter Town with goods to trade. Would he have been noticed? Would he have shown his aggression and skills in such a way to catch the eye of somebody who has the ear of auntie? I think his desperation for having all of his worldly goods stolen colored his interactions with the Collector and Iron Bar and the guards in general, and that if he had come to Barter Town in a bit more of a relaxed mood with the intent to remain calm, do his business, and then leave, I think it would have been drastically different. They might have still recognized something special in him, but I doubt that he would have been so aggressive at the trading counter and been brought straight from there to Auntie's penthouse. Yeah, his journey to Auntie's penthouse definitely would have been longer if it would have happened at all. He was put in a very specific set of circumstances, having all of his worldly things stolen from him that made him desperate. Mm -hmm. And that's definitely a color that shades him at the beginning of this movie. He's had all of this emotional progress in the first two movies where he abandoned the law, became a sort of vigilante, not really a vigilante even. He sought his revenge, took it, and then disappeared into the wasteland. And over the course of Road Warrior... He rediscovered his humanity and his ability to help people, and then he just went back into the wasteland to become just another wanderer. And then having all of his stuff stolen turned him into someone who was aggressive and dangerous, like a dog backed into a corner. I think that's a very apt analogy. I think we talked a little bit about Max's history as a hitman, that we suspected this wasn't his first rodeo. Max spent the second movie learning to help other people again. I'm thinking in the 15 years, that lesson was not reinforced. That what humanity he gained by helping the compound dwellers was not followed up by other acts of humanity and morality. I'm thinking that it was followed up with acts of self-sustaining independence. I have to take care of myself behavior. So the next group of people that he came across, he didn't allow them to get that close. 
sort of thing. Yeah. I say getting close, and he really didn't let a lot of the compound dwellers get close to him, but he let them get to him. I agree. And yeah, getting close is a relative term, especially for Max. Thinking specifically about the gyro captain who wanted desperately to be close to Max. He wanted to be his partner, his friend, and Max just resisted the whole way. But at the very end of the movie, it was the two of them that shared a moment. Mm -hmm. So maybe he was closer to the gyro captain than he was willing to admit. So that's who he is at the beginning of the movie. He's the lone wanderer, the self-sustaining, very business-like wastelander who sustains himself through minimal contact with other people and is, I'd say, upset over the loss of his items. And so we get to the end of the movie. He's still lost his items. He actually has less at the end of the movie than he did at that beginning point of the movie where he was angry showing up to Bartertown because he doesn't have his jacket, he doesn't have his weapons, he doesn't have any sort of supplies. He's got a giant pile of wreckage but we don't see him walking away with any sort of debris in that silhouette. Well, so what kind of person is he at this point? I think he is a person who has learned moral lessons and who has rediscovered a willingness to sacrifice his own life comfort to help other people. Yeah, I can see a transition from making deals and doing jobs for sustaining versus doing a task, doing a very specific action with no benefit to himself, which is exactly what him stopping Auntie's vehicle fleet on that runway is. It is purely an action to benefit other people with no clear benefit to himself, no guarantees or anything. I think there's a few points along the way. I can think of three specific points along the story where he does something for somebody else at very much a risk to his own life. Okay. He refuses to kill Blaster, and that results in his intended death, which fails. He goes after Savannah and the group that wander out into the desert. There is no reason that any of them survived that. Mm -hmm. They probably all should have died. Oh, yeah. So that's the second one. And then the third one is the plane. Okay. I think those are all very significant to Max's development as a character. In the first one, he's gone terminal crazy. He's in a Thunderdome, ready to bash someone's head in, and the person that he's fighting has no ounce of malice in his being. Blaster isn't the kind of person who looks at another person and has hate in their heart. Blaster just does what Master tells him to do. I think it's very important that that moment came first in front of the other two. I think it's because of that moment that the other two happen. So it could just be that Max's character journey over the course of this movie is getting to a point where he almost does something that would taint his character forever, killing someone with no malice of intent towards himself, making him just a straight up murderer. And the rest of that movie is him making decisions that would redeem him and walk him back from that decision. Because when he agrees to go after Savannah and the others, I think it's him saying, you know what, I can can have a concern about other people. I can have a sense of duty towards them, even if 
they went against my wishes completely. This is not a world where you can necessarily afford to make self-sacrifices like that, but I think Max was at a point where he needs to prove to himself that he's still a good person, and going out after these people is a way to show himself that he's still a good person. I like the idea that he is struggling to redeem himself to himself. Yeah. I don't think he cares so much at all about what other people think of him. He doesn't want them to think anything of him. He wants to trade for what he needs to live and then leave again. He doesn't want them to remember him or think of him in any way. So he needs to be able to live with himself. Yeah. Which is something we saw in Max back in Mad Max 79 when he's talking to Fifi. He has to be able to live with himself. And he saw himself changing and was in a place emotionally where he could stop himself. Mm -hmm. But with Jesse's death, he's emotionally compromised. The rest of the series, he is emotionally compromised once he loses Jesse. So he's not always able to see that he's about to cross a line. So who knows what has happened over the last 15 years. But with Blaster, that was a line so severe that he was able to catch it. And he was able to not cross that line. And perhaps that was a catalyst to thinking about whatever else he's done in the last 15 years. Right. <laughs> and I can imagine that it wasn't great, the things that he's done. We supposed that he had been a hitman before. This wasn't his first rodeo. But never before had he been faced with a moral decision so grave and so obvious to turn that mirror around on himself. I like the idea that at the end of this movie, Max's internal karmic scales are balanced. I do too. Max worked really hard this movie. Yes, he did. And he went through a lot of physical hardships and almost died several times and didn't gain anything from any of it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I like to think that the scales are a bit more balanced. I like how this movie ends for Max because you think of the final shots that we have in the first and second movie. The first movie ends, the final shot of Max is him in his car and he's just staring blankly ahead at the road and that's the last we see of him. You think about how Road Warrior ended. It's him standing on that ridge next to the lone wolf just watching the convoy drive away. In both of those instances, he's very stationary. Sure, he's in the car, he's driving, he's moving forward. Sure, in Road Warrior, he's about to drive away. But in both of those instances, the image of Max is very still. In this movie, Max, only in silhouette, is walking. I think he's gotten to a point where he's in a new chapter in his life. As if closing out the end of this third movie is closing out some sort of grand progression for Max. I suppose this is true of any trilogy series where there's the arc of the movie, but then there's the arc of the entire series. Yeah. I think George Miller has done a really excellent job of making it feel like this is the same Max that we met as an MFP officer. This is the same Max that lost his dog, that helped out a group of people that there is continuity in his character, in his emotional state, 
and it's it, remarkable because I don't think Miller intended to have a three movie arc when he made that first movie. No, I don't think he did. I don't think he had a plan for three movies. I don't think he even had a plan for two movies. I think he said, hey, let's make this movie Mad Max. And then it just, things just kind of happened from there. So he's done a phenomenal job of, I guess, retconning. <laughs> <laughs> an arc for this character that we very much care about. Speaking of arc, we've brought up the idea of the hero's journey in the past, and goodness knows that Miller brings up Joseph Campbell more than we do. <laughs> and so looking at the series as a whole in terms of the hero's journey, I'm looking at this handy little animation of the hero's journey. And it starts off with the call to adventure. You know, the hero receives a calling into the unknown. He's got the refusal of the call. So I think the first movie, Max starts going up against these guys in the crazy biker gang. He doesn't like what he's becoming. And so the refusal of the call is him saying, no, Fifi, I don't want to be an officer anymore. We got the supernatural aid in the black on black as this crazy car that's better than everything else out there. We have crossing the first threshold, which is him going after the Acolytes. And then he gets to a point where he is now separated from that normal world once he takes out Toe Cutter. Now, I am looking at a 17-point stage of the hero's journey map as opposed to the regular 8 or 12 one. And I think this is going to offer a lot more opportunities because from that belly of the whale situation being completely engrossed and separated, you got the road of trials where you've got these series of tests that Max has to go to. And I think the Road Warrior is an excellent example of a test and trial that he has to go through. He needs fuel. He saves Nathan. He gets sent on the errand to go get the rig and everything like that. You know, those are trials along the way. And then after the road to trials, you've got meeting with the goddess. So I think Road Warrior is just that one step, the road of trials. And then by the time we get to meeting with the goddess, that's him meeting Auntie. And there's that temptation, which is the next step, to just become a mercenary killer as he accepts the job to kill Blaster. And then he gets to that point where he gets past the temptation and then he gets to this atonement phase. And of course that atonement is when he helps the waiting ones. So after atonement, you've got the peace and fulfillment before the heroes return where they've gotten more or less away from barter town and they're on their way and then of course they have to stop and there's the ultimate boon which is them finding the air truck there's the refusal of the return which is max saying you guys go i'll clear the way for you there's the magic flight which of course is the kids taking off there's the rescue from without which is auntie deciding that she's not going to kill him after all then there's the return where Max is there, he's experienced all these things, and now he's going to return to the wasteland. But he's the master of two worlds in that he knows the strategies of the people he doesn't want to be, and he knows his own strategies, and he's able to incorporate both of those in his experiences, and he's achieved this freedom to just live as he wants as he's walking away as that silhouette. Okay, I agree with all the labels that you just did, but... There's something about the Mad Max story, especially thus far, and I don't think this is going to change once we finish Fury Road. There's something incomplete about Max's story mm -hmm. and about his journey. There's supposed to be some sort of prize or gift 
or happy ending. Mm -hmm. Max does not get those things. I don't think those things are ever going to be physical for him, though. No, I think they're, they're not. always going to be emotional or intellectual. And especially in this movie, well, in Road Warrior 2, we got to see other people receiving their prizes, living out their dreams. The compound dwellers make it to the coast and they form the Great Northern Tribe. This little snippet of the waiting ones make it to Sydney and start a brand new tribe. Max doesn't get that. He gets more wandering, which like you said, is what he wants. Yeah. So I guess he does. He gets his prize. Okay. That's why I see Max just... in this movie where his prize is a moral and intellectual one. He's proven to himself that he's not a terminal crazy, that he can go out into the wasteland and he has the ability and the capability to just help people, to do something selfless and prove to himself that he's still, in some ways, the man that Jesse married. The young MFP officer who has the power to shape the world. He still has that in him, despite the last 18 years wandering out in the wasteland. Alright, I guess... Not that that's not good enough, but I guess it has to be good enough. And that's a fine thing. A lot of people in this world... They're never going to get more stuff. They're never going to make more money. They're never going to live in a nicer house. But the prize that they can attain is being happier where they are, being happier in their current circumstances. I like to look at the end of this movie as the end of one big chapter in Max's life, meaning that any further films after this point can stand on their own. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Because you just went through many of the points of the hero's journey and found equivalents in the first three movies. So the idea of a hero's journey is complete. And it does feel like there could be more for Max. But if we look at it from his point of view, he has received his prize. He feels good about himself in a way that perhaps he hasn't for 15 years. And perhaps he's more emotionally healthy and stable than he's been since Jesse died. Yeah. So those non-tangible things... That's what he did walk away with at the end of the movie. So, yeah, he's still an interesting character. He's not complete. He's not finished. He's not done changing or growing. Yeah, but how many of us are ever truly done changing? No, no we never are. So while his hero's journey is complete, doesn't mean there isn't more to his life. Yeah, he's in the sort of position where he's good for now. But things may transpire in the future that could set him back. And I don't want to get into that right now because that's going to be a lot of what we talk about that first week of us covering Fury Road. I would argue that if you look at a real person, we are going to go through many hero's journeys in our lifetimes. We're going to change into different people many times. So Max doesn't have just one hero's journey. He can do it again and again and again because we never stop changing and growing right up to the day we die. Yep. So with me bringing up the idea of Fury Road, I think it's a good time for us to put a pin in this subject. We need to set Max up on the shelf for a little while, not a full 30 years. For a little while, not a full 30 years. We're not going to spend that long in hiatus 
before we come back and work on Fury Road. <laughs> but for now, let's put Max away and we can start focusing on the other characters as we go forward in this week. So when you come back on Wednesday, we're going to talk about Barter Town. We're going to talk about Auntie and Master and how they work together and just take a good hard look at the people that Max interacted with over the course of this movie. So come on back for that. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. And our outro music is We Don't Need Another Hero by MilitiaVox of MilitiaVox.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute, and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com where you can check out our Tee Public storefront by clicking the store link join our Patreon by clicking the support link, or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link. Thank you for joining us for Minute 103 of Beyond Thunderdome. We'll see you next time. Everybody